morning, church. It's been two months since I've stood in this pulpit. I have an extra long sermon for you this morning. <laughs> We're going to continue our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. It's page 986 in the Pew Bible. Let me encourage you to turn, along, turn, turn to that book in the Pew Bible. Let's bring our Bible to you. Brought to you on 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue looking at chapter 2 this morning. As we're turning there, let me pray for us. Wonderful, merciful Savior. God, we've been singing your praises this morning because you indeed are great and you are worthy of praise. Lord, in these moments, would you continue by your word to speak to us of your glory and your grace? And would we come into a deeper communion with you as you, by your Spirit, Lord Jesus, come? message 
saturation. We're studying 1 Thessalonians this spring. And this morning we come to chapter 2, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God. Now, understand that the city of Thessalonica, like you did, was something of a cultural hub. If you walked down the streets of that ancient city in Macedonia wearing your own eyeglasses and fanny pack, you probably wouldn't be bombarded by 250 advertisements in nine minutes, but you would probably still find a fairly message-saturated culture. First and foremost, in your face, there would have been the propaganda of the empire. Rome disseminating its version of how the world really works and its version of how to find peace in the midst of that world, which of course meant unswerving allegiance to Caesar. But then there were the traveling teachers of the various philosophical schools, each one telling you how to live a good life and make sense of the world, stapling their posters to the lamppost and meeting at the local public library. Stoics telling you to accept your fate and control your passions. Epicureans telling you to maximize your pleasure, but not too much because you want it to last a long time. Cynics telling you to take the ironic stance and mock the pretensions of the powerful. They would have been the guys with mustaches and aviator glasses. But into the mix of all that message saturation, into both their world and ours, Paul makes this word, the message you heard from us, is not a mere human word, but the very word of God, God's own message. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. So last week, we were in verse 3 here, Trinity. Uh, I am bald, but I don't have an Irish accent, so I apologize for not being John Lennox. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, and there Paul was reminding us of how different his ministry was as an apostle of Jesus from all the other teachers and philosophers and propagandists of his day, and, for, and of our day for that matter. But here, as Paul continues, he's saying that it's not just the nature of his ministry, but it's the nature of his message that is utterly radically distinct. And if you look back in chapter 2, you'll see that he's already said in verse 2, and in verse 8, and in verse 9, that what he's bringing is the gospel of God. Not another message about God. The world has plenty of those. But God's own gospel. That is, his announcement. His good news for the world. So here's the big idea this morning. In the chorus of chaos of human messages in which we are saturated, the message of the apostles, the apostolic word, if you will, is God's very own word for us. In other words, what the apostles like Paul and Peter and others proclaim and taught about Jesus and which is preserved for us in the New Testament is not just another human word, but the very message of God wants you and I to hear and to heed. And therefore, we too, as verse 13 says, must accept it. Got it? 
Good, let's go. Big idea. Accept the apostolic word as God's very own word. Now, of course, that's a hard idea to wrap our minds around. That God would break into the sea of our message-saturated human culture and send his very own word for humanity through a group of 14 or so guys in the first century. Okay. That sounds a little strange at first. I get it. But it would have been a hard idea in the first century, too. As we saw in the first part of chapter 2, there were probably detractors in Thessalonica who were casting doubt on Paul's ministry, and they would have been doing the same in Paul's message. Paul, they would have been saying, was just a fly-by-night teacher who ducked out of town as soon as things got tough, and his message, just another human philosophy and a merely human attempt to capture an ultimate reality. But friends, though this is a hard idea on the surface, let me offer two just quick, all-too-brief reasons why. Accepting the apostolic word as God's very own word is not an utterly unreasonable thing to do. One is historical, the other is personal. So first, historical. Nearly every religion will tell you that their message is God's message, right? Why would it be reasonable to accept Christianity, the New Testament teaching of the apostles, as God's very own word? After all, aren't we just sort of grabbing different parts of the elephant, right? Of course, that sort of presupposes you're seeing the whole elephant. So it doesn't really get you out of the trap, right? Well, the historical reason is this. The historical reason is because of Jesus. Start with the historical accounts of his life in the four Gospels. You don't have to begin by accepting them as infallible scripture. Just start with them as faithful narratives of what Jesus said and did. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Did he rise from the dead? It all hinges on that. And if you, like so many others, come to see that yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God that did rise from the dead, then you'll also notice something else. That the risen Jesus himself appoints certain men as his apostles, as his delegates, to go forth and to teach with his authority. Paul's letter to the Galatians opens with that very statement. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So there it is. Paul's whole ministry is predicated on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and appointed him to be his delegate to the nations. The book of Acts, Acts points us in the same direction. In other words, these 12 men with Jesus for his whole earthly ministry, plus one or two others like Paul and James, were personally selected and sent by Jesus to definitively carry the message forward. And what's more, in John 14, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit would come and teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he had said to them. So you see it as this Jesus-authorized, Spirit-inspired preaching and teaching that the apostles proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Samaria and throughout the Roman Empire in cities like Thessalonica, Today has been preserved for us in the New Testament and continues to ring forth to the end of the earth. If you want to talk more about this after the service, come see me. I'm sure some of you are skeptical, you're starting to sort of push against it, but it's too brief. But let's talk about it after the service. There's a historical reason to accept what Paul's saying here in verse 13. The apostolic word is God's word because the risen Jesus has authorized them to teach in his name. And yet there's an even deeper personal reason. For accepting the apostolic word as God's word. And it has to do with the very content of it. 
After all, the heart of what the apostles proclaimed was Christ crucified. A message, as Paul puts it at the beginning of nearly all his letters, a message of grace. That Christ came, that the Son of God took on human flesh and lived a sinless life in our place and was crucified for our sin and was raised for our justification. So that all who stop trusting in themselves and place their trust in Him alone are granted full and free pardon, complete and utter peace with God. This word is at once both strange and beautiful. Foolishness and utter wisdom. The very thing that our hearts are crying out for that someone would rescue us from ourselves. And that we could finally have peace with the one who made us. Of course, many today are worried that if you claim to have God's very own word, it will make you a smug, self-righteous, and proud person. But did you notice how Paul begins verse 13? He thanks God that the Thessalonians accepted that their word is God's word. He doesn't praise them for accepting it. Because you see, ultimately it's God who opens our minds by His Holy Spirit to see the beauty and truth of His gospel. It's not because we're smart enough to get it or spiritually enlightened enough to have gotten hold of it, but because we've been humbled and awed by the God whose message it is. By Jesus who stands in the center of it. And by the Holy Spirit who gives us the eyes to see it for what it is. And if we do get smug or self-righteous, then we this word is a word of grace and peace. That is a word of the cross. So there are two reasons for accepting the apostolic word as God's very own word. One historical, one personal. But if we get that far, how do we go about accepting it? What does it mean to accept it as God's word? Well, it's very interesting that the verse Paul uses here in verse 13 to talk about it. Uh, the first verb, received, basically is a word that kind of becomes a technical word for receiving a tradition that's handed down. But then the second verb that Paul uses, accepted, carries the idea of welcome. It's actually a hospitality word. It's the word you use for the reception of guests. In other words, the Thessalonians didn't just receive the word like a mere tradition being handed down, but they welcomed it like an honored and esteemed guest. So as you think about accepting the word today, think about how you would accept a distinguished guest in your home. First, you'd probably be prepared, right? You'd set the table, you'd change the sheets, you'd clean the toilet, you'd get ready. Now God doesn't expect us to clean up our act morally before his word comes to us. That's the whole point of the gospel, that it's for people who admit they can't clean up their own act. But, are you prepared in the sense of coming on Sunday mornings, having prayed for the service and for the preaching of the word, having read over the passage, maybe having one or two people in mind that you'd like to engage with after the service. In your personal quiet times, are you prepared in the sense of having a plan for what to read and what to pray for? With a journal to note down any insights that God is revealing to you. Now you wouldn't just accept an honor guest with preparation, right? But also with expectation. You'd be excited about having them come into your home. 
You'd be anticipating the thrill of having them sit at your table and talk with you in such an intimate space. And we're to accept God's word in the same way with expectation that he's a great God who promises to do great things through his word. And we can anticipate the thrill of saying more and more of God's character and glory in his word and be excited about the ways God will challenge and change us through his word. So we can do it expectantly, but we can also do it humbly. If a great and long-awaited guest was coming to your home, you'd be humble, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be brash or flippant when they arrive. And your conversation wouldn't be so either. You know, it's kind of like if Yo-Yo Ma came for dinner and he wanted to talk about cello playing or the state of classical music today, you probably wouldn't try to correct him. You probably wouldn't try to say, actually, Yo-Yo, this is good by Yo-Yo. I think you're actually wrong about that in playing technique. Let me see your bow. Of course, I defer to him. You see to learn all you could from him. And it's the same with God's word. We should approach it humbly. And we should also approach it thankfully. You would show an honored guest appreciation for a visit. You might even give him a little gift or a memory you buy. In the same way, friends accept God's word of thanksgiving. You obviously don't have to give God a memento of your time together, but let God know how to move. And finally, if you were hosting someone really noteworthy, my guess is you wouldn't just do it with preparation and expectation, you wouldn't just do it with humility and gratitude, but you'd probably be ready to start spreading the word. Be honest, you would post pictures, you would post pictures to Facebook of you and Yo-Yo Ma chilling in your living room over drinking your cup, right? Come on, you have to. You might even invite a friend or two over for the dinner to get them in on the action. There would be an infectious joy that surrounded the accepting of such a guest. You would naturally want to pull others in. It's the same with God's gospel. The grace and peace of Jesus is an infectious joy that naturally pulls others in. So when you come to God's word on Sunday mornings, or in a small group, or in your quiet time, look for something to share. Some new glory of Christ that you see. Some fresh promise that comforts your soul. Paul would often talk about boasting, not in himself, but in Christ. Make it a discipline to go to the Lord expecting to boast in Christ. And in addition to that, think about what you can add around the table as it were. Easter Sunday will be here in just a few weeks. Good opportunity to invite people to be expecting the joy that surrounds the Lord. So just like receiving a gift, accepting God, accepting God's word is a joy to share. So there it is. There's the big idea of the passage. Accept the apostolic word, not as a really human word, but as God's own word. Because it is God's word, there are three implications now that our passage draws out. The first is in verse 13. The end of verse 13. Because it's God's word, it's at work in us who believe. Paul says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work you believers. Now, if it were a human word, we'd work on it, right? We tweak it or alter it or perfect it or change it or try to sort of get it to work for our schemes, just like every other human idea. But since this is God's word, it works on us. In fact, it works in us. The gospel progressively works itself out in us who believe. It's like a sound wave that gets deeper and richer as it goes on. It's like a seed that grows roots and a trunk and branches and over time becomes a majestic tree. 
God's word is at work. Friend, have you considered the power of God's word in Scripture? In Genesis 1, God creates the universe out of nothing but His word. In Hebrews 1, the Son is said to uphold the universe by the word of His power. Greg started our service by mentioning that Ezekiel had a vision of dry bones and it was the preached word of God that brought it back to life. That spiritual renewal happens to the word. And in Isaiah 55, 11 that we read earlier, it says that God's word always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent. It always does what God wants it to do. God's word is
follow that. God's word doesn't work. Get yourself in the word. How little we change in the world because we are so little in the word. Jesus said in John 15 that when we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. And then he says that part of what it means to abide in him is to have his words abide in us. So friends, don't just hear the word on Sundays. Read it throughout the week. And don't just read it, study it. And don't just study it, meditate on it. And don't just meditate on it, memorize it. And don't just memorize it, but preach it to your heart. If memorization is totally new to you, let me suggest a good place to start. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Very straightforward, nice parallel structure, but done. Let that sink into your heart and see the work that God will start to do. If you've done a little memorization before, go after Ephesians 1 or Romans 8. Take a chunk and see what happens. What you see? If God created the infinite expanse of the galaxies with his own word, imagine what would happen if that word were in you. Imagine what would happen if it were in you and you believe what it said. You have to change. Just like the winter snow has to melt when the warm spring rains come down. The word is at work. I don't know if there are a few other things that bring more freedom and joy than that concept. Because if the word is at work, then when I think about encouraging or discipling my fellow Christians, then I know it's ultimately not my intelligence or my skill or my cultural savvy that's going to produce the fruit. It's the word. And when I'm reaching out to my Christian friends and neighbors, it's not my cleverness or my polish or my encyclopedic knowledge of every apologetic question, which I certainly don't have. That's going to cause the change. It's God's word that's at work. So I'm free to love people and get to know them and serve them and then share them. I want the word to work and pray that the word to work. The gospel Paul says in Romans is the power of God. I don't know about you. God's power sounds a lot more powerful than my power. If you disagree, we can talk after the service. So there's the first implication. Because it's God's word, it's at work in those implications. Here's the second. Here's the second implication. Because it's God's word, it's creating a counterculture in the midst of every culture. We see this in verse 14. Paul says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus and are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own country as they did from the Jews. You see, as God's word does its work in us, it shapes us into a particular sort of people. Generous and Paul says that they became imitators of the churches in Judea, not just imitators of believers in Judea. Paul has community formation in his sight. He's talking about God's gospel creating a people who together form a whole new reality. A counterculture in the midst of every culture. And we know it's a counterculture because Paul says this suffering. Here's what we have to realize the gospel will resonate positively with aspects of every culture. And that's because it has common grace permeates every human society. But the gospel will also challenge and confront aspects of every culture. 
Because every society is fallen and in need of redemption. In other words, gospel transformation will result, on one hand, in cultural admiration, but on the other hand, gospel transformation will result in cultural confrontation. And isn't that exactly what you'd expect as a gospel for God's own word? If it stood above every human culture, and it wouldn't be identical to any of them, it would confirm and confront different elements in each one. And it's not just secular or irreligious cultures that the gospel hand down. It's the moral and religious ones too. If the wireless went out. Do you notice in verse 14 that the church in Thessalonica was persecuted by their fellow countrymen? That is, their immoral pagan neighbors. Okay, God, we expect that, right? But the churches in Judea are persecuted by the Jews, by which Paul probably means the Jewish authorities who are very religious and very moral. So whether it's a strict religious, moral culture, or a libertine, pragmatic culture, the gospel's going to cut across the grain and create a counterculture in both. Why? Because the gospel says that we're sinners saved by sheer grace. And that will strike every culture at the very you see, friends, every culture holds up something as being of ultimate significance. It could be our own collective moral performance that we're so much better than those people over there, or it could be our own sort of fostering of individual autonomy. We are the culture that sort of expresses ourselves most freely. It could be anything, really. But whatever it is, that thing is seen as what will get meaning and purpose and significance, in short, the thing that's going to get people salvation. But the gospel says that only Christ is the one significance. That Christ is the one who, gives, who comes and gives you true meaning and purpose and happiness and salvation. And that means that whatever a culture holds up as ultimate is dethroned. More performance, for example, is shown here. No so if someone has built their whole life around moral performance, and if a culture has built their whole sense of identity around their common rectitude, the message of the cross will be idolized. Because the very thing they spend their whole life trying to achieve is exposed as a dead white right now. I'm not my own just bears. Of course, we can start to see what that provokes and hostility. Do we want to give them what's in the world? You're originally from Thessalonica. Yeah. They lived in a city they love the idea of a king and there with deep cultural resonances with the gospel right? because the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is God's king but in the same strength by their acceptance of Jesus as Lord it was an implicit rejection the claim that Caesar And a rejection along with the whole civil religion and the imperial cult. Did they need Caesar for their peace anymore? For their protection? For their significance? Of course not. And Christ. And that caused them to be perceived as threats to the established social order of the government itself. The very thing the city of Thessalonica held up as ultimate Caesar, Rome, was dethroned in the hearts of the Christians by the gospel. 
as God's gospel. If you become a Christian, it will fling you center stage into the great conflict that runs through every human culture and every human heart. Humanity worshipped and served created things rather than their creator. And now God in Christ is coming to become king. God's rescue operation is to restore his fallen creation and to redeem the people of his very own. God is creating a colony of heaven on earth. He's putting an outpost of his kingdom in the midst of a rebel world. And this colony, this outpost, this gathering, this church, starts to do things very differently. Money, sex, power, work, Relationships in all of your region figure are in the Lordship of Christ. His word has created this community. A community of innovators. A community of people who do things differently, who point forward to the kingdom to come. And that means it's going to be a community of sufferers. You see, the church is kind of like an organ transplant. And although the new organ is meant to give life and will bring life, it's received, sometimes the sick and failing body will turn against it. The failing system of this world will often turn against the very organ God has planted right in its midst to bring life. Now Paul had more to say about suffering in the coming chapter. So let me make just a couple of brief applications before we move on to our final point. First, Paul is talking about a corporate reality. He's talking about being the church. So in order to be a follower of Christ, you've got to be connected, if at all possible, to a body of Christ. You can't be part of the counterculture God is creating in the world if you're not publicly identified with a local church or membership. So if you're looking for a way to get in on the action as a Christian, join the church. Second, is your life recognizably distinct from the non-Christians around Is your allegiance to Christ causing you to think and act in ways that bring both admiration and confrontation, or at least consternation, from your colleagues and neighbors? But again, this application has to be for are we, in our life together, acting in ways that make us distinct from the prevailing culture in which we live? Of course, I'm not talking about rough beards and funny clothes that everybody in the room is wearing. I mean, are we putting into question the prevailing cultural idols of our day by the quality of how our life is lived together? How are the ways in which we sex and singleness, and money and stewardship, how are they profoundly challenging the deep-seated individualism and consumerism that shape the air in which we breathe? That's part of our job. To let the Word start working in us in such a way that it forges a whole new way I'm excited to be a Trinity because we've only just begun this project. 
message. That the gospel is not just a mere human word, but God's own word to us. That brings us to our third and final point. The Thessalonians receive suffering from their faith, and Paul says that that's evidence that they truly accepted God's word as God's word. But in the midst of all that suffering, Paul declares that because this thing is God's word, it won't be overcome. Verses 15 and 16. You suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it's always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now in these verses, Paul's intention is primarily to encourage these persecuted believers in Thessalonica that their opposition and suffering won't last forever. He wants them to know that God sees their suffering and like an unrelenting lover, he will vindicate hard for us in the West to imagine what true physical persecution must be like. This hit home for me in recent weeks when we received news at the church office about a friend of Pastor Samuels. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Samuels, the, the pastor of Hebron Christian Fellowship, the church that meets here on Sunday afternoons, is largely Ethiopian Eritrean congregation. Samuel shared with us the news that one of his dear friends in northeastern Kenya named Abi Weli, a Muslim background believer, was killed just weeks ago for his allegiance to Christ. Shot dead outside a bank at 10 a.m. I don't mention this this morning to be sensational. But simply to be real. And to help us to realize that for the family and the church family of a brother like Huffington Whitman, it's good news to know that those who stand in the way of the gospel will not stand in the way of that the suffering of God's church will not be the last word. That oppression and violence will one day come to an end. And to know that since the apostolic word is God's very own word, it will not be overcome. Of course, these two verses are very difficult for us. And they're made more difficult for us because of the long history of Christian anti-Semitism. We read a passage like this and it's hard not to read it through that awful lens of Western history. So we have to address it. And let me do so briefly by saying just very clearly that discrimination against Jewish people on the basis of their ethnicity, or for any other reason for that matter, is utterly contemptible and contrary to the gospel of Christ. Those who have acted this way in the past or who do so in the present Thessalonica were Jewish. We 
learned that in Acts 17. In fact, Paul was so deeply in love with his own Jewish people that he could write this in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Reading that passage from Romans, it makes one wonder whether Paul wrote verses 15 through 16 in our passage, not with anger in his voice, but with tears in his eyes. So you see, we read Paul in his own terms. We see that neither this text nor anything else in the New Testament for that matter. There's any grounds for anti-Semitism. But what is Paul saying? He's saying that the gospel will not fail. That it will not be defeated. Notice the threefold opposition to the word described here. They killed Jesus, they drove out many of the Jewish believers from Judea, and they now hinder the mission of the Gentiles. But you see, at every turn of the corner, they couldn't succeed. The Gentiles were continually converted. And the believers who were driven out of Judea caused the church to spread even more. And of course, though Jesus was put to death, he rose victoriously from the grave. At every point, God vindicated his son and his church in his time. So those who oppose the gospel simply find that they are opposing the the last line of our passage is the most cryptic. Paul says, wrath has come upon them at last. Some scholars think Paul has in mind a recent historical event like the Judean famine in AD 44 or the Jerusalem Massacre in AD 48. But I think it's more likely that Paul is actually speaking of a future event. That he's speaking of God's ultimate judgment, but he's speaking of it as so certain that he uses the passive tense to describe it. We actually do this from time to time. You know, if your basketball team is trailing 20 points in the fourth quarter and your star player gets hurt, you might say to yourself, well, we've lost this one. Right. And I think that's the kind of certainty Paul is expressing here. And the certainty that God's gospel will not be overcome, that its opponents will face judgment, is to three applications. First, it gives persecuted Christians the strength and hope to hold up. It will not last forever. If you live in fear and anxiety, you can know that God's word will not be overcome. Second, this truth gives us strength to love our enemies and not retaliate. Because since God will judge, I don't have How should Christians respond to persecution? In chapter 5 of this same letter, Paul writes, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 27 and 28, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. That we are to love our enemies and let God be the judge. Third, knowing that God will judge gives us humility in our walk and in our witness. Because we have been saved from that same wrath by God's grace. And by God's grace alone. And all who call 
I know my own heart. If left to my own devices, I would oppose the gospel, were it not for God's grace. Even now, enemies of the cross can lay down their eyes to shame and flee to the sea. So, friend, as you look in your heart, are you opposing the gospel this morning? Not outwardly, not actively, but inwardly in your own heart. There is a mountain of grace ready for you in the arms of Christ. He endured the wrath and the cross so that all around him will never face judgment, no matter how great their sins have been. Paul knew this forgiveness, and so can you. If you will simply let down your resistance and accept the gospel of your greatness, A few years ago, a man with a violin set up to play in a metro station in Washington, D.C. He played six classical pieces for 43 minutes, and over a thousand people walked by. But during the course of his playing, only seven people stopped to listen, and most of those only for a minute or two. Only about 20 other people threw money in his violin case, mostly on the run, and the total only ended up to about 32 bucks. Little did any of those thousand plus people know that this nondescript man was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. Three days before playing in the Metro in DC, Joshua Bell had filled the house at Boston Symphony Hall for seats went $100. Two weeks later, at the Music Center at Strathmore, Maryland, he would play to a standing room with an audience. So respectful of his artistry that they stifled their applause until the silence of three minutes. Friends, one day the gospel, the music of God's presence, is going to fill this world like a great violinist filling the concert hall. And yet, God in his mercy has come to us now into the messiness of human life, into our message-saturated culture to start playing the same tune and to get ready for that day. But only those who accept him now in the nature of his work will have a seat in the concert hall. Friends, the biblical gospel is a heart-changing, counterculture-creating, unstoppable force because after all, it's God's gospel. May we all accept it as such this morning. And may we go on accepting it until the great concert begins. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would continue to soften our hearts.